Hello and welcome to Alice is Everywhere. My name is Heather, and today we will read and discuss chapters 10 and 11 and 12 of Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. Surprise! We're finishing the book. Did you have any idea we were going to finish the book today? I'll be honest with you, I, I had an idea. I totally knew. Don't worry, this will not be a 90-minute podcast. It will become evident to you very quickly as to why we are doing three chapters all at the same time. We've got a poem to cover, too. You'll recall both this book, Through the Looking Glass, and the preceding Alice's Adventures in Wonderland start with a poem, while Through the Looking Glass also ends with a poem. And I am torn as to whether to read it directly after chapter 12, or if we should read the last three chapters, discuss them, and then read the poem, and then end this episode abruptly. (laughs) And if you are wondering, yes, I am concerned that my crying will be an issue. More in regards to the poem, not the end of the narrative. I don't know. We'll see how I feel. Game time decision. When we last left our hero, she became a queen. But contrary to what the Red Queen promised her, being a queen was not all feasting and fun. First, there was a rather nonsensical quiz to pass. Then when the feast finally started, it was truly the stuff of which nightmares are made. Long awkward silences, talking legs of mutton. Alice was asked to give a speech that she was totally unprepared for. Then everything turned to absolute bedlam. Bottles started flying through the air. Soup ladles started walking around. The White Queen went for a dip in the soup. Alice responded to this lunacy by grabbing the tablecloth and sending everything and everyone crashing to the floor. And I'm going to reread just that last part to you. Again, it will be clear to you rather quickly why I'm doing that. Let's just get to it, shall we? I can't stand this any longer, she cried as she jumped up and seized the tablecloth with both hands. One good pull and plates, dishes, guests, and candles came crashing down together in a heap on the floor. As for you, she went on, turning fiercely upon the Red Queen, whom she considered as the cause of all the mischief. But the Queen was no longer at her side. She had suddenly dwindled down to the size of a little doll, and was now on the table merrily running round and round after her own shawl, which was trailing behind her. At any other time, Alice would have felt surprised at this, but she was far too much excited to be surprised at anything now. As for you, she repeated, catching hold of the little creature in the very act of jumping over a bottle which had just lighted upon the table, I'll shake you into a kitten, that I will. Chapter 10, Shaking She took her off the table as she spoke, and shook her backwards and forwards with all her might. The Red Queen made no resistance whatever, only her face grew very small, and her eyes got large and green. And still, as Alice went on shaking her, she kept on growing shorter, and fatter, and softer, and rounder, and... Chapter 11, Waking. And it really was a kitten after all. Chapter 12, Which Dreamed It. Your Majesty shouldn't purr so loud, Alice said, rubbing her eyes and addressing the kitten respectfully, yet with some severity. You woke me out of, oh, such a nice dream. And you've been along with me, Kitty, all through Looking Glass World. Did you know it, dear? It is a very inconvenient habit of kittens, Alice had once made the remark, that whatever you say to them, they always purr. If they would only purr for yes and mew for no, or any rule of that sort, she had said, so that one could keep up a conversation. But how can you talk with a person if they always say the same thing? On this occasion, the kitten only purred, and it was impossible to guess whether it meant yes or no. So Alice hunted among the chessmen on the tables till she had found the Red Queen. 
Then she went down on her knees on the hearthrug and put the kitten and the queen to look at each other. Now, Kitty, she cried, clapping her hands triumphantly, confess that was what you turned into. But it wouldn't look at it, she said when she was explaining the thing afterwards to her sister. It turned away its head and pretended not to see it, but it looked a little ashamed of itself, so I think it must have been the Red Queen. Sit up a little more stiffly, dear, Alice cried with a merry laugh, and curtsy while you're thinking what to, what to purr. It saves time, remember? And she caught it up and gave it one little kiss, just in honor of it having been a Red Queen. Snowdrop, my pet, she went on, looking over her shoulder at the white kitten, which was still patiently undergoing its toilet. When will Dinah have finished with your white majesty, I wonder? That must be the reason you were so untidy in my dream. Dinah, do you know that you're scrubbing a white queen? Really, it's most disrespectful of you. And what did Dinah turn into, I wonder, she prattled on as she settled comfortably down with one elbow in the rug and her chin in her hand to watch the kittens. Tell me, Dinah, did you turn to Humpty Dumpty? I think you did. However, you'd better not mention it to your friends just yet, for I'm not sure. By the way, Kitty, if only you'd been really with me in my dream, there was one thing you would have enjoyed. I had such a quantity of poetry said to me, all about fishes. Tomorrow morning you shall have a real treat. All the time you're eating your breakfast, I'll repeat the walrus and the carpenter to you, and then you can make believe it's oysters, dear. Now, Kitty, let's consider who it was that dreamed it all. This is a serious question, my dear, and you should not go on licking your paw like that, as if Dinah hadn't washed you this morning. You see, Kitty, it must have been either me or the Red King. He was part of my dream, of course, but then I was part of his dream, too. Was it the Red King, Kitty? You were his wife, my dear, so you ought to know. Oh, Kitty, do help to settle it. I'm sure your paw can wait. But the provoking kitten only began on the other paw and pretended it hadn't heard the question. Which do you think it was? And that's the end. Fiend. The story is over. We are back on the proper side of the looking glass. On the outside looking in, as it were. By the way, I just learned from Sherry Ackerman's book, Behind the Looking Glass, that Lewis Carroll originally planned to call the book we just finished Behind the Looking Glass. It was his friend, art critic, instructor, and fellow Victorian mucky muck, John Ruskin, who convinced him, nah, through the looking glass really sounds better. You probably noticed that I did not read the closing poem, mostly because I think the narrative ends on kind of a light, frothy, though somewhat metaphysical note. And the closing poem is not light and frothy. It is absolutely devastating, in my opinion. So after we chat about the last three chapters, I will close this podcast episode with the closing poem so that you can all be devastated and ruminate on what it means and enjoy the silence until next time. So the question is, which dreamed it? Easy. The Red King dreamed it. End of discussion. Bye. See you next time. Talk soon. I kid. There is no right or wrong answer to which dreamed it. I don't think. If you need a little refresher, back in Chapter 4, Alice heard a loud sound that she feared was a speeding freight train or perhaps a growling lion, and it turned out to be the Red King snoring. Tweedledum and Tweedledee took her over to see the dormant king, and the following exchange occurred. He's dreaming now, said Tweedledee. And what do you think he's dreaming about? Alice said, nobody can guess that. Why about you? Tweedledee exclaimed, clapping his hands triumphantly. And if he left off dreaming about you, where do you suppose you'd be? Where I am now, of course, said Alice. Not you, Tweedledee retorted contemptuously. You'd be nowhere. Why, you're only a sort of thing in his dream. 
If that king was to wake, added Tweedledum, you'd go out bang, just like a candle. I shouldn't, Alice exclaimed indignantly. Besides, if I'm only a sort of thing in his dream, what are you, I should like to know? Ditto, said Tweedledum. Ditto, ditto, cried Tweedledee. He shouted this so loud that Alice couldn't help saying, Hush, you'll be waking him, I'm afraid, if you make so much noise. Well, it's no use your talking about waking him, said Tweedledum, when you're only one of the things in his dream. You know very well you're not real. I am real, said Alice, and began to cry. You won't make yourself a bit realer by crying, Tweedledee remarked. There's nothing to cry about. If I wasn't real, Alice said, half laughing through her tears, it all seems so ridiculous, I shouldn't be able to cry. I hope you don't suppose those are real tears, Tweedledum interrupted in a tone of great contempt. I know they're talking nonsense, Alice thought to herself, and it's foolish to cry about it. So she brushed away her tears and went on as cheerfully as she could. Okay, so that was the exchange back in chapter four. Side note, do you guys remember in the very first chapter of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Alice drinks her drink me bottle and shrinks for the first time? She is understandably a little nervous about this and says, for it might end, you know, in my going out altogether, like a candle. I wonder what I should be like then. And then she tried to fancy what the flame of a candle looks like after the candle is blown out, for she could not remember ever having seen such a thing. Well, Tweedledum has a theory for her. You go out, bang, just like a candle. Slightly less poetic than Alice's musings. I just flipped through this book, and I believe the Tweedles in Chapter 4 are the first ones to propose that our entire story is a dream. We certainly have some hints before then. Alice gliding down the stairs without touching them in Chapter 1, suddenly finding herself on a train in Chapter 3. I suppose an argument could be made that every single thing in the book, after she goes through the looking glass, is dreamlike. Talking flowers, sighing insects, you know, the whole act of going through a mirror to the other side. It's all always made perfect sense to me, of course, but some people may find that strange. So the Tweedles in Chapter 4 are the first to say, we are in a dream. They believe it's the Red King's dream. The next dream mention is in Chapter 5, Wool and Water, when Alice is on the boat with the sheep slash white queen. Alice stops to pick some scented rushes, which is, if you don't know, those are like long grass-like plants that sway around in ponds and lakes and stuff. And our narrator, Lewis Carroll, tells us what mattered it to her just then that the rushes had begun to fade and lose all their scent and beauty from the very moment that she picked them. Even real scented rushes, you know, last only a very little while. And these, being dream rushes, melted away almost like snow as they lay in heaps at her feet. But Alice hardly noticed this. There were so many other curious things to think about. Okay, Elsie says the rushes are dream rushes. But... Would the Red King really be dreaming about Alice wanting to pick rushes? Is this a dream within a dream? Is it Alice dreaming about the rushes within the Red King's dream? Just what the dickens is going on here? If you're hoping I'm going to have a fantastical and original theory about this, rest assured, I have no idea. What I can tell you, due to my mad Control-F skills, is that the next mention of dreaming is the beginning of Chapter 8, It's My Own Invention, the drums have just sounded to beat the lion and the unicorn out of town, and then chapter 8 starts. After a while, the noise seemed gradually to die away, till all was dead silence, and Alice lifted up her head in some alarm. There was no one to be seen, and her first thought was that she must have been dreaming about the lion and the unicorn and those queer Anglo-Saxon messengers. However, there was the great dish still lying at her feet, 
and what she had tried to cut the plum cake. So I wasn't dreaming after all, she said to herself, unless, unless we're all part of the same dream. Only I do hope it's my dream and not the Red King's. I don't like belonging to another person's dream, she went on in a rather complaining tone. I have a great mind to go and wake him and see what happens. But of course we don't get to see what happens because just then the Red Knight tries to capture her, the White Knight rescues her, and we've quite moved on from all this dream talk. Until the very last chapter, which we just read. It begins with Alice telling Kitty, You woke me out of, oh, such a nice dream. She proceeds to call it my dream several times, but then the book ends with, Now, Kitty, let's consider who it was that dreamed it all. This is a serious question, blah, blah, blah. You see, Kitty, it must have been either me or the Red King. He was a part of my dream, of course, but then I was a part of his dream, too. Was it the Red King, Kitty? You were his wife, my dear, so you ought to know. Blah, blah, blah. Which do you think it was? That's how the book ends, and as I've already stated, I have no idea. An alert listener with the username Proudfoots, with a Z, was nice enough to leave some comments on some blog posts that accompany our podcast episodes, and Proudfoots wrote, No doubt the philosopher's Alice mentions the 4th century BC sage Chung Zhu and his dream which is rather like the idea that Alice is a figment of the Red King's dream. I'm going to be honest with you, Proudfoots. I don't know if the philosopher's Alice mentioned Chung Zhu or not. My apologies for doubtless mangling that name. I don't know because I gave up on using the philosopher's Alice pretty quickly when it came to Looking Glass. You may recall I mentioned the philosopher's Alice by author Peter Heath several times when we were reading Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I tried to find some useful snippets to use for our Looking Glass episodes, and it just absolutely went over my head. So far over my head. Like, like when your computer is acting funny and you go Google the problem and, and sometimes you're lucky and the answer is just, oh, go uncheck this box, but usually the answer is so incredibly technical it may as well be in another language. The Philosopher's Alice may as well have been in another language in regards to Looking Glass. That's not to say it's not full of useful information and theories. It just wasn't useful to my very small brain. In fact, my only real takeaway from the entire Looking Glass half of the book was that Heath calls Jabberwocky a sorry tale of the destruction of innocent wildlife. And he says that Alice's aesthetic reaction to Jabberwocky was, and I quote, deplorable. And I thought both those opinions were really, really funny. Deplorable. How dare you not have a proper aesthetic reaction to an incomprehensible poem? Stupid seven-and-a-half-year-old. Hey, here's a sixpence, Alice. Buy a clue, all right? More from chapter 12, as chapters 10 and 11 didn't involve too terribly much. Though I do hope Alice didn't shake Kitty too hard in her half-dreaming state. Besides wondering whose dream it was, chapter 12 involves Alice trying to figure out what real-life people, or in this case cats, were in her dream. She thinks Black Kitty's the Red Queen because they're both so full of mischief. She thinks Snowdrop the White Kitty is the White Queen because they're both so untidy. She thinks Dinah the Mommy Cat is Humpty Dumpty, and I'm not really sure of her logic there. By the way, I read recently that Dinah, in real life, was not actually Alice's cat, but her older sister Lorena's. Not sure if that's really a crucial piece of information. I just know that I've referred to her as Alice's cat several times, and we are all about accuracy here on Alice's Everywhere. Now, Snowdrop was the name of Mary McDonald's cat. We haven't talked too much about the McDonald's, or maybe not at all, actually. This was a family that was very close to Lewis Carroll. The kids called him Uncle Dodson. 
The patriarch, George MacDonald, was a successful author. Lewis Carroll showed his original manuscript of Alice's Adventures Underground to George MacDonald to see if he thought it was worth publishing. Then George showed it to his kids, and they loved it, and the decision was made. So Snowdrop, in real life, belonged to one of the MacDonald daughters, Mary. No word on who the real-life kitty belonged to. Hmm. Guys, we are far from done with Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there. Please tune in the next several episodes when we will delve further into the identities of the White Knight, the Red Queen, and other characters. We'll get super detailed about Jabberwocky and learn all those fun portmanteau words. We'll talk about Looking Glass as a chess game, if it really and truly works. So much to talk about. As usual, if you are enjoying the Alice's Everywhere podcast, please spread the word to your family and friends via social media or even in person if that sort of thing happens anymore. Especially moms and dads whose kids are still on summer vacation. Those parents must be losing their minds right about now. Why not instill some summer book learning in those impressionable young minds and maybe possibly get them excited about a 150-year-old book? Am I dreaming? Are we in Heather's dream now? Is that impossible? I hope not. As promised... I am going to leave you with the terminal poem of Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there. I'm using the word terminal very deliberately because something has died. Like many of Lewis Carroll's poems, this is an acrostic. The first letters of each line spell something out. That something, in the case of a boat beneath a sunny sky, is a name. Alice Pleasant's Little. A boat beneath a sunny sky, lingering onward dreamily in an evening of July. Children three that nestle near, eager eye and willing ear, pleased a simple tale to hear. Long has paled that sunny sky, echoes fade and memories die. Autumn frosts have slain July. Still she haunts me, phantom-wise, Alice moving under skies, never seen by waking eyes. Children yet the tale to hear, eager eye and willing ear, lovingly shall nestle near. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, life what is it but a dream. Thanks for listening. Talk soon.